You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on life that Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Now, here is Stephen Olford on Today in the Word radio. Turn with me, then, to our next section in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 through 11. 7 through 11. And as we did a few mornings ago, I would like you to read this with me. I care not what version you have. I think it will be sufficiently similar to make this a reading for us in unison. Matthew 7 and at verse 7. Together, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son ask bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask? May the Lord bless that reading of his word to our hearts. For those of you who've just joined us, I've taken a section of the Sermon on the Mount these days and entitled it Freedom Laws for Kingdom Life. We're children of the kingdom. More technically, we are subjects of the kingdom answering to our king, our lord, our master. And because we're in that kingdom, there are laws, freedom laws, standards by which we are to conduct our lives, not in our own strength, but in the power of an indwelling Lord made real in us by the Holy Spirit, fleshing out those laws day by day. And we've dealt with a law that touches the life of anxiety, the life of priority, the life of maturity. There is a sense in which we must judge. Jesus said it in Matthew and John chapter 7. See that you judge righteously. And there is absolutely nothing wrong in exposing and exposing and saying behind or in front of a person's face. Quite definitely, Jesus did it. What is wrong? Otherwise, your silence condones their wrong. And that's compromise. But what we learned was what is destructive judgment, what is redemptive judgment, and what is exclusive judgment. The Lord spoke to our hearts. And it's very interesting that right from that statement, the Lord Jesus moves into the subject of prayer. And somebody has said, and I want to quote this twice that you get it. Somebody has said that reality is what you are in the presence of God, no more and no less. And so our subject this morning is freedom laws for a life of reality. And I know nothing 
that makes an impact on our contemporary age within or, within or without the church as a life of reality. I remember in the 60s when the young people went berserk, went to drugs and alcohol and overthrew the establishment, pulled down universities, attacked the church. I went right through that with them. One of the greatest concentrations of that movement was in New York and in the environs. I went into the parks many, many a time and talked to these painted faces, glazed eyes of young people from the finest homes, doctors, lawyers, judges' homes, and asked them why they were rebelling. And if one would have to reduced it to one sentence, it would have been this. We just cannot stand the phoniness of our generation. They wanted reality. The way they reacted wasn't right. And eventually God broke in with that wonderful movement of the Holy Spirit, which we call the Jesus people, which took various forms, but brought such a revival to our young people. Reality. Reality. Let me quote it again. I don't know its source. It's anonymous. Reality is what you are in the presence of God. No more and no less. Anywhere else, we can deceive others. Sometimes we can deceive our wives. That's very difficult. Or our husbands or our children. But you can't deceive God. As we kneel before our God, who's both our maker and our master, nothing is hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. As I say to preachers so often, you're just as tall in the pulpit as you are on your knees in the study. Reality. And it's significant that the verses immediately before this had to do with discernment and judgment and maturity. And now the Lord Jesus takes us right into the very holy of holies where we may obtain grace, find mercy to help in time of need. This is where we assume reality. And there are three main laws the Lord Jesus deals with in this passage that are very, very simple, but terribly important. And may encourage a ministry of prayer such as you've never had as of this morning. Here is the first law. It is the law of persistency in prayer. Persistency in prayer. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. Before we exegete that, may I just say this? Conferences like this are so wonderful. We catch the euphoria and the emotion and the passion of an experience like this. And for several weeks we go back and we're right at it. And then somehow or other all that dissipates. All that dissipates and we're back to where we were before. God grant that will not be true this week. And one of the secrets is going to be this matter of persistency. And Jesus is teaching us this. You notice these words occur both here and in Luke 11. Jot that down in verses 9 through 13. But in each of the contexts, the emphasis is on persistency in prayer. And these three clauses visualize what Jesus meant by persistency. He said, ask, 
and it will be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be given unto you. The Father is the giver. The gift lies there in heaven. We are the recipients of God's grace, and these three verbs come right home to our hearts. Ask, seek, knock. In what sense do those words teach us persistency? Number one, there are three levels of praying. The first one is the level of requesting in prayer. Requesting in prayer. Ask, and it shall be given you. That's the simplest form of prayer taught in all of the Bible. Just asking. And there are a whole host of passages that I could quote this morning just to back this form of requesting in prayer. To illustrate this, let me just quote one or two. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, all things whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Matthew 21, 22. Now, in asking, of course, there are two things we always got to remember. One is what I'm going to call acceptance in prayer. Have I a right to come into the presence of God? Acceptance in prayer. And secondly, authority in prayer. When we come asking, those are two conditions that the Word of God lays down. First of all, acceptance in prayer. When we come, we are told to come in Jesus' name, in the Savior's name. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 14. Easy to remember. The name stands for all that the Lord Jesus is in his life, in his nature, and in his ministry as our advocate and intercessor. And to mention the name of the Lord Jesus reverently and believingly is like touching the scepter of the king upon the throne. That ushers us right in, and we can make our requests. Acceptance in prayer. Mind you, it's not just a meaningless formula, mentioning the name of Jesus. Do you know what mentioning the name of Jesus means? It means identifying myself with who he is in all his person, in all his purity, in all his purpose, in all his promise, his name. It's not just a magic formula. The name is the very nature of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then on the other hand, we come not only with our acceptance in prayer, but our authority in prayer. And that's based, of course, upon God's word. The master made this plain when he said in those precious little children that just moved me to tears this morning, they quoted it from the 15th chapter of John. If ye abide in me, and what? My words abide in you. You shall ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. We can only pray in the will of God when we allow the great and exceeding promises of God to abide in us. This implies not only an understanding of God's truth, beloved, but an obedience to God's truth. The words abiding in me are not just the words in my memory. I could be an atheist 
and have a vivid visual memory and master passage after passage of the word of God and quote it. So it isn't the word in our minds, that's good. And the word in our hearts, so that we should not sin against the Lord, it's the word in obedience. If we abide in him and his words abide in us. The level of requesting in prayer. And you know, when you know that acceptance because of the name, and when you know that authority because of the word, I tell you, you can come with boldness into the throne of grace. Reminds me of a beautiful story that I was just reveling over again this morning concerning George Muller, that great leader of the orphanage in Bristol for many, many years, a great saint of God, great expositor. George Muller was crossing the Atlantic by ship on one occasion, and the ship ran into very dense fog. George Muller made his way up to the bridge and tapped the captain on the shoulder and said, I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. And this was Wednesday. And he added that he had never broken an engagement to speak for the Lord for 50 years, and he's certainly not going to break one now. The captain had been on duty for 22 hours. And he replied very wearily, I would be willing to help you, but it's impossible, sir. It's just impossible. So George Buller said to him, let's go down to the chart room and pray. The captain looked at him as much as to say, out of what lunatic asylum have you come? <laughs> but Mr. Muller said, you don't know that the dense fog is nothing to God. You see, your eye is on the dense fog, but my eye of faith is on Quebec. He said, let's go down and pray. Eventually, the captain agreed, and they went down and Muller got down on his knees, and the burden of his prayer was something like this. I quote, O Lord, if it is consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you gave me in Quebec on Saturday, and I believe that's your will. There was a pause, and the captain just began to pray when Muller put his arm on him and he said, don't you open your mouth. He said, for one thing, you don't believe God can do it. So that's no point in praying. And the next is the fog's gone. <laughs> they got up off their knees and it was blue sky, glorious sunshine. Here's a man who had such acceptance and authority in prayer. He could just ask. He could just ask. Beloved, I have a great heritage because I was born on a mission station and grew up under the tutelage of a father who knew the power of prayer. Although that's years and years and years ago, my father used to rise early and go into his little chota, his little hideout. And even though the door was shut 
and who's quite far removed from other parts of the house. You could hear him praying. You could hear him praying. And I could spend all day, all day, telling you of the most miraculous answers to prayer. Miraculous answers to prayer. Prayer is not a piece of magic. It's not just a philosophical, nice feeling that comes out of reading certain scriptures. Prayer is a force. That's what James says. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, what? Availeth much. Availeth much. The level of requesting in prayer. But there's another. We're talking about persistency, aren't we? Persistency in prayer. There's another level. It's the level of researching in prayer. Researching in prayer. First requesting in prayer, then researching in prayer. Seek and you will find. A researcher is a person who seeks and examines diligently in order to find his evidence and then weighs it up and comes to a conclusion. Seeking, then, is a deeper level than asking. Some things are clear to us, absolutely clear, and as long as we have acceptance and authority in prayer, we just ask and believe God is going to answer. But seeking is something different. Seeking is something different. Asking has mainly to do with things, but seeking has to do with the Lord himself. Lord, Lord, I'm not sure about this, and I'm seeking your face because I want to know what your will is. Now, to me, the greatest interpretation of seeking in prayer, this level of praying, is that matchless verse in Romans 8. Romans 8, 26 through 27. Paul writes of this seeking when he says, The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches or seeks hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for saints according to the will of God. I've been a Christian for a long, long time. I've been in the ministry for 40 years. But I'm still, I'm still delving into the mysteries and wonders and power of that verse. What does it mean? What does it mean to allow the Holy Spirit to use the temple of your life in such a fashion that your mind and heart and will are totally identified with the Holy Spirit so that you know what is the will of God. You see, all true praying starts in the heart of God, not in your heart. Perhaps you didn't know that. All true praying starts in the heart of God. And by knowing the heart of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit, what God's will is becomes my will, and so the circle is closed. Prayer started there, goes right through my heart, back to God. That's praying. That's praying. And sometimes we don't know how, even how to express those prayers, so we groan. We don't even articulate the prayers. You see, it's not enough just to bring proof texts into the presence of God and say, Lord, you said it there. We must understand what is the will of God as interpreted through the word of God. And this requires searching and seeking. But we're encouraged with a promise. Seek and what? You shall find. To quote 
George Buller again. George Buller says, I never remember in all my Christian course that I ever sincerely and patiently sought to know the will of God by the teaching of the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of the word of God, but that I always was rightly directed. But if honesty of heart and uprightness before God were lacking, or if I did not patiently wait on God for instruction, or if I preferred the counsels of my fellow men to the declarations of the word of God, I made great mistakes. And there's a saint talking. A saint talking. We're talking about persistency in prayer, right? First level, the level of requesting. Second level, the level of researching. But here's a level that so many people don't know anything about. The third level is the level of resisting in prayer. Resisting in prayer. Knock, and it shall be open to you. If asking has to do with things and seeking confronts us with the very person of our Lord, then knocking suggests fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. This whole concept of knocking at the door denotes a desire for entrance, entrance into fellowship, fellowship with God. Let me quote Andrew Murray, the great Dr. Andrew Murray of South Africa. Knocking speaks of admission to dwell with him and in him. But at the same time, the door signifies a barrier, a barrier, something which has to be resisted if fellowship is to be enjoyed. I like that. I like that. If God, if God is to be enjoyed in a deep intimacy of fellowship in prayer, then whatever, whatever shuts him out has to be resisted. Now, let me point out carefully, it is not God who puts up the barriers, but rather man in his selfishness and sinfulness and the devil in his subtlety who puts up the barriers. So what is resisting in prayer? What is resisting in prayer? Let's look at it. First of all, it means overcoming selfish resistance. Selfish resistance. Said the master, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. He said that, you remember, when his disciples fell victim to selfish indulgence and slothfulness. Instead of praying, they were fast asleep, satisfying their own indulgence. Then James reminds us that selfishness can close heaven when he warns, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your lusts, your pleasures as another version puts it. How often we allow selfishness and lustful indulgence to enter into our prayers. God looks for true in intercessors who will knock and go on knocking until the barriers of selfish resistance are broken down and we're given an abundant entrance into intimate fellowship with God. So the first barrier is selfish resistance. The second barrier is sinful resistance. The psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, what's the rest of the text? The Lord will not hear me. And Isaiah quotes, God is saying, your sins have hidden his face from you and he will not hear. 
Such sin may be directly against God. It may be against our fellow man. Whatever it is, we're exhorted to live, leave our gift at the altar and go and first be reconciled to our brother and sister. And when we put that right, then we come and offer our gift and we'll be heard of him. Thank God there is a place of reconciliation and cleansing at the cross. We've quoted the text often this week. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Selfish resistance, that's a door. Sinful resistance, that's a door. Guess what the third is? I know you've got it. Satanic resistance. Satanic resistance. Paul tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickednesses in high places. And beloved, let me ask, tell you something. We're so caught up right today in this lovely sunshine and all these beautiful, beautiful surroundings and the fellowship here and so on, we're not aware that beyond what we can see with our natural eyes are millions and millions and millions of satanic forces, demonic forces around us that are totally out to thwart God's purposes here upon earth. Paul says, don't be fooled. We're not fighting with flesh and blood, eyeball to eyeball. There are forces way beyond us. And he describes them as principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickednesses in high places. And I wish we could do a whole Bible reading on that regime of authority in satanic and heavenly places against the Christian today. Perhaps the greatest illustration in passing is the illustration of Daniel. You remember Daniel experienced this resistance in prayer as is recorded in the 10th chapter of Daniel. Read it today. Read it today. He was told from heaven, Daniel, do not fear. Do not fear. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand, that is God's will, and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. Your words were heard. And I've come because of your words. That's the answer. However, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. That's the messenger who brought back the answer. For how many days? 21 days. 21 days. 21 days. 21 days, the prince of Persia. Now, we could go into a, a good theological discussion as to who the prince of Persia was. But he was a force that represented satanic resistance. And for 21 days, the prince of Persia held back the answer to Daniel's prayer. We haven't a clue what we're up against when we come to prayer. The devil is out to thwart us. Just as every one of you precious people here has an angel that watches every step of your life. Ministering spirits who are sent by God to those who are heirs of salvation. Every one of us has an angel. So every one of us has a demon. Have you ever read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters? If you never have, you do. I don't know what the devil who dogs my path is. 
where he, whether he's snobgob, that's one of them that he mentions, or whoever he is. But I want to tell you, the devil watches every single step we take. I like that passage in C.S. Lewis where Snobgob goes back to the devil and says, you know, I just cannot make headway with this young Christian. He's having his quiet time, he's praying, he's growing, and I'm frustrated. I can't stop him. The devil thinks for a little while and he says, I'll tell you what to do. Just let him go on praying. Let him go on reading his Bible. Let him go on having his quiet time until he drops on his knees and says, boys, I'm holy now. I'm really humble. Get him that far, he says, and you've sunk him. You've sunk him. It's an amazing, amazing book on the philosophy and psychology of satanic forces. You ought to read it. But it's a resistance, you see, a resistance we're up against. That's why there must be the level of resisting in prayer. First level, requesting. Second level, researching. Third level, resisting. That's what Jesus meant by ask, seek, knock. Whatever this barrier is that holds me back from an intimate fellowship with God to win through in prayer, that's got to be resisted. Quickly, let's turn to our next law. The law of persistency in prayer, number one. Two, the law of fidelity in prayer. Number two, fidelity in prayer. Look at the text. We go on. William Barclay renders verse eight as follows. Keep on asking, and it will be given you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and it will be opened unto you. It's obvious, of course, that these words suggest a fidelity, a faithfulness in prayer, a faithfulness in prayer. In other words, it's describing a habit in prayer, or if you prefer, a lifestyle in prayer. And Jesus wrapped it all up in one tremendous statement when he said, and it's mind-boggling, he says, men ought always to pray and not to faint. And he left no alternative except this. You're either praying or you're fainting. You're either praying or you're fainting. He says men ought always to pray and not to faint. Either you're praying or you're fainting. And if you study the context of Luke 18.1, where I've just quoted that verse, if you study the context, the immediate context, the Lord Jesus is speaking of the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and the divine judgment which visited those generations in their time. Then he said these words, when the Son of Man comes, when the Son of Man comes in glory, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find fidelity on the earth? In effect, he was saying, in the midst of unfaithfulness, such as we're living in today, worldliness, such as we're living in today, will there be found a group of men at Moody Keswick or elsewhere who are faithful in prayer? Faithful in prayer. Will there still be people who keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking? What is fidelity in prayer? I believe two things that Jesus teaches here. First of all, obviously, activity in prayer. 
activity of prayer. We read that the early disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And a critical understanding of this verse makes it plain that the prayer times referred to here were planned and for the most parts were special occasions. And I ask you to read Luke's gospel, which is the most powerful gospel on prayer. And of course, Dr. Luke was not only the author of the gospel, but also read immediately the Acts of the Apostles, also written by the historian Luke. And underscore every time the word prayer or praying or anything similar to that occurs. And you'll have the most amazing education in prayer. The early church was a praying church. The early church was a praying church. And I want to tell you, if you want to test the barometer of your church, don't talk about Sunday morning. Even if you have four services in a row. Don't talk about Sunday night, even though you have a packed congregation. Tell me how many come to your prayer meeting. Heather and I sat at the radio because we were in and out of Wheaton during Moody Founders Week. And guess who we heard? Billy Kim. Billy Kim has been called, quote, quote, the Billy Graham of Korea. And he says the strength of the church is only 20% of the population. 80% of Korea, South Korea, of course, we're talking about, is Buddhist. Only 20% is Christian. But you know they're making a bigger impact upon that country than the Christian church is making in any other country in the world in spite of the tremendous things that are happening in Africa right now where 20,000 souls are being saved every week. And do you know why? He gave us five reasons, and I'm not going to speak on them. He said the Korean church is a praying church. I'll come to that in a moment. A praising church. A propagating church. A persecuted church. And a purified church. Then he came back to praying, and I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over it. I mentioned it the other day. Of the millions, I'm not talking about hundreds, I'm not talking about thousands, but the millions who spend hours and hours and hours in prayer. Every Saturday, at least one million Christians gather in a marketplace in Korea to pray for a whole day. There are prayer times that go for 100 days non-stop with prayer and fasting. And yet Heather and I crisscrossed this country and touched down at churches where everybody's talking about packed congregations on a Sunday morning. And you go to the prayer meeting and there's a little handful of 25. Activity in prayer. I hope you're going to make a resolution here that whatever other service you have to cut out because of your schedule, you're faithful at your prayer meeting. You're faithful at your prayer meeting. And don't just sit. Pray. Pray. It was because of the activity of our Lord in prayer. He was always praying. He prayed before 
He chose his disciples. He prayed at his temptation. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed when he sent forth his disciples. He prayed all night, many nights, throughout the night. And his disciples came and they saw this activity of prayer and said, Lord, oh Lord, teach us to pray. Now we understand the secret of your life. And of course, this was true right through the Pentecostal days of the church that was born in Jerusalem. Praying, praying, praying. Activity in prayer. But fidelity in prayer is something more. It's the attitude of prayer. Not just the activity of prayer, but the attitude of prayer. When Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint, I'm sure he was catching this thought up. And then Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing. And without doubt, Paul is here referring to the unbroken fellowship which can exist between a believer and his Lord. This is a life which knows the fullness of the Spirit and the secret of moment by moment abiding in Christ. So we see that prayer is not only an activity where you actually go to a prayer place with your wife, the three of you, a prayer meeting, something actually organized, but it's also an attitude, an attitude of life, an attitude of life. And just to support that, I want to quote one of my favorite Bible scholars in the world today. He comes from Australia. He has written commentaries. He's written the greatest word on the cross that you'll find in literature today. The greatest thing on Matthew, Dr. Leon Morris, Dr. Leon Morris, and commenting on this matter of attitude and prayer, he says, it's not possible for us to spend all our time with the words of prayer on our lips, but it is possible for us to be all our days in the spirit of prayer, realizing our dependence upon God for all that we have and are, realizing something of his presence with us wherever we may be, and yielding ourselves continually to him for the doing of his will. Where there is such an inward state, it will find outward expression in verbal prayer. And in this connection, we should notice the frequent ejaculatory prayers throughout Paul's letters. Prayer was so natural and so continual with this great apostle that it found its way inevitably into his correspondence. Here he is dictating to his amanuensis by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and suddenly takes a form of prayer. Why? Because he's always in the attitude of prayer. Beloved, that's fidelity in prayer. And you know, speaking as a pastor to beloved pastors here and to my brethren in the ministry, you know, I can soon tell when a man walks with God because at any point, the drop of a hat, we can pray. We have to say, now let's get into the mood. Let's get a little chorus. Let's see, is there a word of scripture we can read just to get ourselves? No, he's already in the attitude of prayer. And you can just drop down and pray. What is an attitude suddenly becomes verbalized? Suddenly becomes verbalized. And beloved, I tell you something. This is the one activity, like witness, the only two in the Bible, apart from holy living, the only two in the Bible, witnessing and praying, that has no special gift. Everybody, every one of us is included. Now, I know God calls the praying hides and some of these mighty men into long seasons of 
fasting and praying for revival, but I believe all Christians are included in both the activity and the attitude of praying. Why? Because prayer is the Christian's vital breath. If you're not praying, you're dying. Or, in the Lord's words, if you're not praying, you're fainting. You're fainting. Finally, of course, the obvious law, expectancy in prayer. Expectancy in prayer. Law number one, persistency. Law number two, fidelity. Law number three, expectancy. Carry on, verses 9 through 11. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, etc., etc.? How much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, here are words that just fire our expectancy in prayer. The Master is describing two characteristics of our heavenly Father. One, his fatherliness, and the other, his faithfulness. And arguing from the lesser to the greater, in other words, from heavenly, from earthly parents, rather, to heavenly parents, he does something here which we need to look at very, very carefully. There's a twofold conception of God here. Number one, his fatherliness. If then, being evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those that ask? One of the most comforting tenets of our Christian faith is the fatherhood of God. And I guarantee to say, beloved, you haven't heard a sermon for a long, long time on the fatherhood of God. That's one of the greatest teachings of Scripture, the fatherhood of God, that the day I received the Lord Jesus into my life and the Holy Spirit quickened my dead spirit to life and the Holy Spirit came to dwell in me, a relationship was established and I could look up to heaven and said, Father, Abba, Father. And God's Spirit witnessed with my spirit that I was a child of God and that I'm in the family and he is my father. Now, amongst our youngsters today, in all the lyrics they write, in all the verses they sing, and all the songs they express, it's Jesus, 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 and that's wonderful. And he's God's son. But we've forgotten something about the fatherhood of God. He's my father. He's my heavenly father. And Paul states the same thing when he declares, for you are the sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And if God is our father, then all is well. Everything that we can expect from a good father, he will give us. All good gifts come from the father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow cast by turning. He's our father. And just as a little child, these precious little treasures we saw here today, jump up onto Daddy's knee and say, Daddy, Daddy, may I, can I, will I, please? Father, that's the spirit. But not only the faithfulness, not only the fatherliness, rather, of God, but the faithfulness of God. And here is something perhaps you haven't looked at before. The faithfulness of God. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And on and on. Here is a metaphorical language carefully chosen to illustrate God's faithfulness. And what the Lord Jesus is really saying is this. What earthly father 
would give a child a stone when he asks for bread, or a serpent if he asks for fish, or a scorpion if he asks for a gift. What man could ever do that? And you know why he says that? Because on the surface, these word pictures may not convey the subtle significance of what the Lord Jesus was saying. But let me tell you something. The limestone, the limestone on the seashore were exactly like the little Jewish loaves. You pick up a limestone and put it alongside of what mother cooks in a Jewish home, and you couldn't tell the difference. Exactly the same shape, same color as the loaves. Then there were certain fish. There were certain fish called the eel that's translated serpent here. Actually, it's the eel. And you'd think it was a little snake, but it isn't. It's an eel. Again, a small egg had a close resemblance to a poisonous scorpion when at rest with its claws and tails folded in. Folded in. Now, I know something about that because twice I was bitten by a scorpion. And once I picked it up. I thought something pretty. And instantly I was stung and went right into a coma. I know that. Now, says Jesus, even with a close resemblance of a loaf of bread to a stone, of a fish to an eel, of an egg to a scorpion, what heavenly, what earthly parent would dare, dare to make that mistake? It could be a rare occasion, but not often. However foolish or unreasonable may be our requests, God is always faithful in dealing with us. In fact, the master goes on to say, how much more will your heavenly father who is in heaven give good things to those that ask him? And if you look at Luke's account of this same, same statement, the good things there is called the Holy Spirit. If ye being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give without the article the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to them that ask. And I am absolutely convinced that's not the person of the Holy Spirit there because he's talking to those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit or who've been born again of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the plenitude, the power, the gifts, the blessings, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We'll be dealing with that tonight on the Holy Spirit. The fatherliness of our God, the faithfulness of our God. And then if our earthly parent gives good gifts, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good gifts to them that ask? What an encouragement this is to a life of prayer. Oh, that God would enable us through this teaching to cultivate what I'm calling persistency in prayer. Fidelity in prayer and expectancy in prayer. And I want to tell you something. What counts costs. And I know no exercise or discipline in my life for which I have to fight for the hour, the time, the place, the solitude, and the concentration to pray. It's far easier to watch television. 
It's far easier to read that novel. It's far easier to socialize with my friends. But drop those things and say, I'll go and have an hour of prayer. And the battle begins, right? And yet this is the most powerful, the most precious, and the most effectual weapon that God has ever given to the church of Jesus Christ. And this age group here is especially of precious people. Oh, it's my cry to God this morning that God will give you a new concept, a new concept of what you can do in prayer. Ruth Graham had a wonderful father. He's now in glory called Dr. Nelson Bell, a missionary in India for many, many years. A wonderful biography has been written about him. And Dr. Nelson Bell, as he got older, decided he had to switch from editorial work and speaking and even medicine to a ministry. Do you guess what that ministry was? Prayer. And I was rocked to my foundations and deeply humbled, but mightily helped. When one day talking to him in Key Biscayne and the hotel there, where I was recovering from a tonsillectomy, he said, Stephen, my boy, I rise very early. I think it was something like three o'clock in the morning before anybody could disturb him, and for two hours until about five o'clock when he slipped to bed just for another little snooze before he got up, he says, I go to my prayer room, and I have a prayer stool. And he said, I want to show you. And he opened up his little prayer book, and there, right down the list of names that he prayed for, Stephen Alford. You know, that just grabbed me, as the kids say. But it made me cry. Do you know what you could do for the kingdom of God? If you grabbed this message here this morning, Lord, teach us to pray. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of a five-part series of messages Stephen Olford presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1984. Stephen Olford was a pastor, author, international evangelist, and a pioneer Christian broadcaster with his TV program, Encounter. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.